1948, journalist Samuel LaBelle used polling data to predict Harry Truman's victory over James Dewey. Correctly predicting a result that so many newspapers got wrong turned LaBelle into an instant celebrity. In short, he was the Nate Silver of his time. Even writing a book in 1956 about the revolutionary political power of centrism. Oh, it really was the Nate Silver of his time. (laughs) Holy shit. It's amazing. These characters, they just, you know, (laughs) nothing changes. They're like mushrooms. They just pop up, you know. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But before he was driven to the radical middle, LaBelle wrote a highly influential book in 1952 called The Future of American Politics, in which he tried to lay out the political landscape of the country for the next 20 years. In this book, LaBelle celebrates the reemergence of the frontier. The parallels between the old western frontier and the new urban frontier are striking. The role of the railroads in opening up the western lands has been duplicated first by the subway and streetcars and currently by the automobile in making ever new housing accessible. To Frederick Jackson Turner, the ever receding frontier was a zone of most rapid and effective Americanization. At the outer edge, where civilization and savagery met, was where men of all races were melted down and fused into a new race. That holds equally true for the new frontier. For the urban masses, each advance into a new neighborhood has also been a beginning over again, which took them even further from their European origins in the case of the immigrants, or with Negroes from the plantation south. There's been much poo-pooing of social climbing without appreciation of the fact that it is a vital part of the Americanization process. The move to a nicer neighborhood would often be celebrated by a shortening or anglicizing of names. Items of alien garb would be dropped. Foreign accents would lighten. There would be more American food in the grocery stores, less orthodoxy in worship, more intermarriage with other ethnic elements, and, as an ironical index of Americanization, more divorce. Like much of Nate Silver's work, LaBelle's depiction of the suburban melting pot was meant to work as a salve to calm the nerves of liberals growing increasingly anxious about a changing world. And, also like Nate Silver's work, it was exactly wrong. ending the myth the show where we put our lead masks on stare directly into the eclipse and receive the cosmic vibrations that allow us to understand american babylon (laughs) i'm brian and i'm munya and today we're going to talk about housing with the help of the truly excellent documentary the pruitt igo myth munya what'd you think of this movie and do you recommend that our listeners watch it 
I thought this movie was like really, really great. Um, you know, I I've seen my fair share of documentaries over the years, and um, you know, I think it was just really well done. It was concise, clear. Had a really specific point, and I loved the interviews that they actually gave to you know real people who like lived within Prudigo. I think that that was like a really cool aspect, and it's just like a story that you don't really hear much, and if you do hear the story, it's told in a really specific lens, so um, I thought that it was like a really great and balanced documentary. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. Alright, should our listeners go watch it? Definitely. I recommend it. Um, you should go see it. It's hard to find, to be honest, but like, uh, it's also really easy to find, because you can find it at like, you know, your local library or library streaming services like i used canopy uh to watch it mm-hmm. if you have like a library card just use uh your library card and you can watch it for free on canopy and it's like on like all the streaming devices like apple tv and stuff too so yeah and it seems to work with uh library cards all across america except for the new york city public library system who said that us. it was like too expensive and i'm like my I'm sorry if these like regional libraries can afford canopy like the New York City <laughs> library system can like absolutely afford it like I don't know it was a bizarre statement to me yeah incredible stuff well uh definitely check it out and you know what everybody how about this you have your orders all right so just just pause the podcast right yeah. now go watch the Prudigo myth and we'll wait yep All right, now that you have watched the film, we can begin our story. In the 1930s, American cities were facing a growing housing crisis. Mechanization of American agriculture in the 1920s and 1930s made the labor-intensive farming methods of post-Civil War sharecropping increasingly obsolete. Black farm workers in the South, many of which had been turned into tenant farmers by the collapse of Reconstruction and the looting of the Freedmen's Bank, were hit particularly hard and were forced to migrate to urban areas for work. They were followed by small landholders of all races as the Dust Bowl, the culmination of decades of bad farming practices that had been required by the market, drove their farms into foreclosure. Forced off their land, rural workers and their families were then confronted with the severe limitations on housing that had been built up over the previous three decades. Smaller sundown towns continued to not be an option for black and Latino families. Restricted covenants, which had become the norm in housing purchases, kept the same families from purchasing an already existing home almost anywhere in America. And bank demands on new housing, 30 to 50% down payments and only a five-year non-amortized loan, which was standard in the 1920s, made purchasing a new house nearly impossible. As a result of the dearth of choices available to them, rural workers were crowded into growing slums in major industrial cities across the United States, a process that was put into hyperdrive by the war economy of the late 1930s and early 1940s. In Detroit, the black population doubled to 300,000 between 1940 and 1950. In other areas of the country, the results were even more dramatic. In Oakland, the black population more than quadrupled in size, just to over 47,000. In places that had previously been especially hostile to black migration, like Seattle, 
saw impressive growth as the black population went from 3,500 to just over 15,000. <laughs> this is like uh, peak almost black population Seattle. It's just yeah. 3% of the city. You know? <laughs> oh, well. Uh, Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> this explosive population growth was not met with a concomitant growth in housing. As historian Thomas Segrui notes, in Detroit, quote, finding affordable housing in the 1940s and early 1950s was nearly impossible. In a typical September week in 1950, the Office of the Housing Expediter of the Housing and Home Finance Agency found only 37 rental units available in the entire city. 18 were too expensive for the average industrial worker, 25 did not allow children, and 10 were one- or two-room units unsuitable for family occupancy. In the early 1950s, the Detroit Free Press reported that 10,000 families were homeless each year because when places to rent are hard to find, prices go up and landlords get extra fussy about children. Landlords have always been cool is the lesson here. Yeah. <laughs> They're the new punk rock, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> These are just mom-and-pop landlords, so why can't we give yeah. them a break? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> In these dense urban slums, black families were charged exorbitant rent by slum landlords, taking advantage of the increasingly tight rental market. Historian Thomas Segrui describes the situation of black Detroiters in the 1940s. The process of housing segregation set into motion a chain reaction that reinforced patterns of racial inequality. Blacks were poorer than whites, and they had to pay more for housing, thus deepening their relative impoverishment. In addition, they were confined to the city's oldest housing stock, in most need of ongoing maintenance, repair, and rehabilitation. But they could not get loans to improve their properties. As a result, their house deteriorated. City officials, looking at the poor housing stock in black neighborhoods, condemned many areas as blighted and destroyed much extent housing to build highways, hospitals, housing projects, and a civic center complex, further limiting the housing options of blacks. Moreover, the decaying neighborhoods offered seemingly convincing evidence to white homeowners that blacks were feckless and irresponsible and fueled white fears that blacks would ruin any white neighborhood that they moved into. Finally, Neighborhood deterioration seemed definitive proof to bankers that blacks were indeed a poor credit risk and justified disinvestment in predominantly minority neighborhoods. For would-be white homeowners, the situation was significantly less dire. While black families were left to the warm embrace of the market, white homeowners were given substantial federal aid. In 1933, the Roosevelt administration created the Homeowners Loan Corporation, or HOLC, in order to help stabilize the mortgage market. The major contribution of Hulk was to systematize the housing appraisal process banks used to determine home values. To quote historian Kenneth Jackson, they created, quote, a formal and uniform system of appraisal reduced to writing, structured and defined procedures, and implemented by individuals only after intensive training. The ultimate aim was that one appraiser's judgment of value would have meaning to an investor located somewhere else. In short, they carried out the progressive era policy of industry professionalization and standardization within the real estate market. Holt created a rating system that sought to accurately value neighborhoods based on a standard scale. The system had four grades, 
Again, quoting Kenneth Jackson, the first grade areas were described as new, homogenous, and in-demand residential locations in good times and bad. Homogenous meant American businesses and professional men, Jewish neighborhoods, or even those with an infiltration of Jews could not be considered best any more than they could be considered American. The first grade was given the letter A and was marked in green on residential maps. Fourth grade neighborhoods were graded D and were marked red on residential maps. Black neighborhoods were always rated D. Hulk translated its rating system into a series of residential security maps for each city in the country. These maps revealed a multitude of value judgments about what made a good home, what made good communities, and who had the right to live there. In his map of the St. Louis metro area in 1940, Hulk rated the bulk of the central core of the city with C and D grades. In describing a white working class neighborhood near the city's fairgrounds park, Hulk officials wrote, quote, Lots are small. Houses are only slightly set back from the sidewalks. And there is a general appearance of congestion. As Kenneth Jackson notes, quote, Although a city lover might have found this collection of cottages and abundant shade of trees rather charming, the Hulk thought otherwise. Age of properties, general mixture of type, proximity to industrial section on the northeast and much less desirable areas to the south make this a good fourth grade area. The highest rated neighborhood on the map was Ledoux a sparsely populated suburb of rolling hills, forests, and expensive houses. Hulk appraisers applauded the highly restricted nature of the community with its capitalists and other wealthy families, where, quote, not a single foreigner or Negro reside. In making these appraisals, Hulk favored the newly built single-family homes constructed in the suburbs over the already existing homes and the potential new multifamily housing in the city's urban core. They also formalized the segregationist impulse of the previous half-century of American housing by equating white neighborhoods with good investments and black neighborhoods with bad investments. In 1941, Hulk passed around a confidential survey on real estate prospects in St. Louis, where they repeatedly bemoaned the problem in, quote, the problem, quote, in maintaining real estate values in the face of a rapidly increasing Negro population. Hulk's residential security maps were no mere exercise in cartography. They were used by the agency to determine whether the federal government would intervene to help refinance a home that was facing foreclosure. The built-in assumptions ensured that Americans of darker hue, who lived in urban cores, would be left to the cold embrace of the market while those deemed sufficiently middle-class, white, and suburban would be bailed out. To make matters worse, Hulk's purportedly secret maps appeared to be secret only to the public. A survey of New Jersey banks in the late 1930s revealed that when asked about what areas they deemed to be desirable or undesirable for home lending, the banks responded with simple answers such as A and B or blue, meaning second grade. For areas they deemed undesirable, they simply wrote C and D, or not in red. It was clear Hulk's secret residential maps had been quickly adopted by banks and private real estate interests, who used them to both formalize and intensify their segregationist housing practices. In 1934, FDR put together an eclectic team of advisors, ranging from agrarian populist hero Henry Wallace to railroad heir Avril Harriman, 
and asked them to devise a way to bail out the home building industry that relied on the private market rather than government funding. What they devised was the Federal Housing Administration, or FHA. The FHA's primary purpose was to juice home starts and put construction workers back to work. On these criteria, it was a massive success. New home starts doubled between 1937 and 1941. The FHA was able to accomplish this by guaranteeing home loans, indemnifying the lender if the borrower were to go into default. The FHA also standardized much more favorable lending practices for the borrower that had been tested out by Hulk, namely lowering the down payment to only 10%, extending the life of the loan to 25 to 30 years, moratizing the debt so that it could be paid in constant small payments, and lowering the loan interest rate. By doing this, the FHA instantly made home ownership more affordable to millions of people. Sounds good, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> sounds sounds awesome. Yeah, great. This, uh, this is the end of the story, right? Everything got better. <laughs> All right, but come on. You know what podcast you're listening to. <laughs> <laughs> the FHA, banks, and real estate brokers all worked from the same assumptions that Hulk had formalized with its appraisal system. Suburban neighborhoods were favored over urban areas when it came to lending. The same suburbs that had spent the last 50 years fortifying themselves against black families moving in. These suburbs then had their home values tied to maintaining racial segregation in housing. Hulk's underwriting manual was used by the FHA and banks alike to evaluate home values, even openly encouraged the use of subdivision regulation and suitable restrictive covenants to help white homeowners maintain their property values. This race policy as regards to housing could be carried to dark absurdities. As Kenneth Jackson notes, quote, in the late 1930s, for example, as Detroit grew outwards, many white families began to settle near a black enclave adjacent to Eight Mile Road. By 1940, the blacks were surrounded, but neither they nor their whites could get FHA insurance because of the proximity of an inharmonious racial group. So in 1941, an enterprising white developer built a concrete wall between the white and black areas. The FHA appraisers then took another look and approved mortgages on the white properties. <laughs> yeah this wall is six foot tall and one foot wide just <laughs> concrete ah uh, good stuff gotta love it right the fha also encouraged new construction over renovation funding four times as many new housing starts during the 1940s a ratio that ballooned to seven to one in the 1950s with the suburbs cut off to black residents and with no money set aside for the renovation of the types of homes that black people could live in, people became trapped in deteriorating urban neighborhoods. The results of FHA policy were devastating. The movement of the white middle class out of the urban centers and into the suburbs stripped cities of their tax base, leading to the further decline and devaluation of urban areas. For black families that did happen to own homes, the appraisal process that was adopted by all parties presented a massive theft, a transfer of black wealth to white homeowners and banks no different than the pilfering of the Freedmen's Bank. For black renters, it represented an intensifying isolation, the creation of increasingly underfunded and underserved black ghettos surrounded by the white noose of white suburbs. These housing policies were not without criticism, however. 
1955, Charles Abrams, a famed urban planner and professor at Columbia, stated of the FHA, quote, A government offering such a bounty to builders and lenders could have required compliance with a non-discrimination policy. Or the agency could at least have pursued a course of evasion or hidden behind the screen of local autonomy. Instead, FHA adopted a racial policy that could well have been culled from the Nuremberg laws. From its inception, FHA set itself up as the protector of the all-white neighborhood. It sent its agents into the field to keep Negroes and other minorities from buying houses in white neighborhoods. Historian Kenneth Jackson notes of this criticism, quote, For its part, the Federal Housing Administration usually responded that it was not created to help cities, but to revive home building, to stimulate home ownership, and to reduce unemployment. And it concentrated on convincing both the Congress and the public that it was, as its first administrator, James Moffat, remarked, quote, a conservative business operation. Jackson then goes on. But FHA also helped to turn the building industry against the minority and inner city housing market, and its policies supported the income and racial segregation of suburbia. For perhaps the first time, it wasn't the federal government embraced the discriminatory attitudes of the marketplace. Previously, prejudices were personalized and individualized. FHA exhorted segregation and enshrined it as public policy. Whole areas of cities were declared ineligible for loan guarantees. As late as 1966, for example, FHA did not have a mortgage on a single home in Camden or Patterson, New Jersey, both declining industrial areas. This withdrawal of financing often resulted in an inability to sell houses in a neighborhood so that vacant units often stood empty for months, producing a further steep decline in value. FHA's denial of responsibility for the gross inequality created by their policy is less an act of cowardice or cynicism than an outgrowth of the modern state. Polk's residential security maps, which sat at the heart of redlining and housing segregation, represented the progressive impulse to take the prejudices of the American capitalist class and the prerogatives of the business community and transmogrify them into formalized objective statement of mere facts. These facts, then put into action by all the administrative arms of the state and of the market to create the grotesque brundlefly that is modern America. Every step of the way, and at every rung of the ladder, it is just professionals doing their job, content in the objectivity of their profession. After the Second World War, downtown business interests began pushing city governments for urban renewal programs to deal with the slums that had been built up during the 1940s. 
These projects had the backing of the building trades, which made up a major constituency within the Democratic Party's labor coalition. At the heart of these projects of urban renewal was slum removal, or Negro removal, as its critics derisively called it. City planning commissions tried to develop plans to disperse the black population of their cities, first to the suburbs and then to the other areas on the city's periphery. These projects were blocked by zoning laws, banks, real estate interests, and groups of concerned homeowners. Efforts to disperse upwardly mobile black families to single-family homes were likewise blocked by racial covenants, redlining, and the segregationist practices of real estate agents. And efforts to disperse the black population more evenly throughout the city was opposed by those who worried about the downgrading of their property values. So, a decision was made. There would be slum clearance, and then large-scale, dense urban housing would be built on top of the former slums. These public housing projects would be funded by the Housing Act of 1949. What resulted was the creation of a two-tier housing policy, as historian Arnold Hirsch describes. Quote, private sector programs, especially those of the FHA, occupied the upper, frequently suburban tier and made available supports and incentives designed to ease the transition to home ownership from its virtually all-white clientele. The second tier consisted of means-tested, low-cost, low-rent public housing and the only program to offer benefits to African Americans from its inception. Based on this calculus, St. Louis began construction of 33 11-story apartment buildings squeezed onto a 57-acre lot just north of downtown in 1951. Completed in 1955, the Pruitt-Igo Public Housing Project would consist of nearly 3,000 units housing 12,000 people. Uh, Munya, we got to see, you know, the stages of development of Pruitt-Igo at this beginning stage, the salad days, the beginning, right? Uh, what was your impression of the early days of, of Pruitt-Igo depicted in the film? It really seemed like Pruitt-Igo was just an incredibly positive development. Like, I mean, is something going from slums to what was just very, very new, dense, like, you know, urban housing, like all across like this, like big lot, really people like for the first time having like, you know, a livable place, right? And like these things like went so high, right? That like, um, one of the Pruitt-Igo's tenants uh, called it uh, the poor man's penthouse, because they could actually see views that like the people, the richest people in the city could see as well. I mean, it, they were living like nicely, man. Like, it, and she said that, after after that, uh, she would never um, go back to living on the first floor. She was like, "I'm I'm always like <laughs> I'm <laughs> on the top. I'm done with it." Right? It was like <laughs> it was so so um, positive in the in the um, the renders and the execution of it. Like everything just was just like incredible to me. I think that it was like really really uh, positive for the community, um, especially in the early days. Yeah, and the project. I mean, you know it followed along with the, you know, sort of most optimistic tenets of modern architecture at the time. It won architectural awards. 
you know, the facility itself, uh, it was these massive housing units, but it had libraries and, you know, social services and things like that. that were on site. It was like very walkable, right? Like everything that they mm-hmm. needed was in a walkable range. Um, they had um, like amazing uh, parks for kids, too. They really considered like the kids aspect, which, yeah. as we said before, was not really considered by private landlords. Right. And actually like excluded. So actually having like things that kids could do and everything like it is it seemed like a real turning point honestly yeah and i think that we forget that the slums that we're talking about that people are being forced into in the 1930s and stuff like that it's less than kind of what americans imagine today which you know we get uh which are actually the old housing projects from the 50s and 60s (laughs) that we picture from like movies we watched in the 90s right you know crime you know panic movies from the 90s they look less like that. What they look like was more Dickensian in the 1930s, which was extremely dilapidated old buildings. Uh, a lot of the housing would have, you know, not had running water, electricity, things like that, you know, would have looked more like Dickensian London slums than, you know, maybe what we're imagining now. Yeah, people, like what you'd see in London or like Brazil or something, yeah, you yeah, know, like a favela like, or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, the people who moved into pruitt Igo. Uh, there's one woman who talks about how the slum they moved to in Detroit, they moved up from the South in the 1930s, that there was not enough rooms in it or anything like that for their mother to have a bed. So the mother just slept in what, you know, constituted the kitchen in this house. Right. Yeah. And they went to Pruitt Igo. They were just shocked that there was like rooms in their apartment and that her mother would have a bed for the first instead time instead of sleeping in the kitchen yeah, yeah I, on the floor essentially right and you know so i mean I, I think one of the things that's really powerful about this movie is hearing from you know people because I, I think when you hear housing projects again we have this image that's heavily colored by the crime panics of the 80s and 90s and that's not what you're hearing from people when they move in here right one of the people talks about how everybody was seemed to be putting up Christmas lights and yeah. they would, you know, when nighttime came, they would walk through the projects and look at all the Christmas lights everywhere. I mean, for the people moving in, this seemed like uh, this was a huge development for them, right? Like this really no, was, it, it was, was like great, life. Cha- you know? It felt yeah. like life changing uh, as the tenants were describing. I mean, yeah. 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 And then, then something happens. <laughs> something fascinating happens. Early in the film, the documentary rather ominously notes, from the first, public housing had enemies. Banks, realtors, and chamber of commerce lined up against it, fearing its effect on their bottom line. Public housing was labeled as un-American, as a communist erosion of the free market. So, Ryan, what happened to the Pruitt-Igo projects? Yeah, I mean... It, it starts so great, uh, but you know, because you're watching a documentary recommended by us, that it's not going to end <laughs> great. And really, by the 1950s, federal housing policy had taken this very conservative turn, particularly under Eisenhower. The emphasis shifted heavily toward getting the federal government out of public housing and shifting the responsibility to local governments and the private market. Mm, sound familiar? Yeah, exactly. Public-private partnerships, a big a big sticking point in a lot of these discussions. Um, 
you know, critically, you know, Congress even blocked the use of federal funds for utility and maintenance and public housing authority projects, demanding they work on a fee model. Uh, for Prude Igo, you know, that meant all the funding for keeping up this massive housing project had to be derived from the tenants' rents. Tenants who were, by definition, because these projects are means tested, you know, having access to these projects is means tested, uh, are the poorest people in the city. Now, keep in mind, this project is massive, you know, 33 11 story buildings, you know, 3,000 units, all this stuff, lots of green space and things like that between the units. I mean, these are massive facilities. Uh, and so once they basically choked off the ability to fund maintenance, predictably, it began to slip a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the maintenance issues in Prudigo were kind of like abysmal, right? Like um, <laughs> there, there will be like leaks on the ceiling, right? That will start and like water will just kind of like drip down. There will be like sewage issues, right? Like where like you just like sometimes the sewage wouldn't actually like drain properly, you know, there was just a lot of things like when it was actually winter time, the <laughs> the water uh, would essentially like freeze. Like, was it the water? Um, was it what? What was like basically like freezing shut during like the winter time? Now that yeah, I'm like, forgetting exactly what it yeah, was. Yeah, it's the water. I mean, they would have these, you know, massive water leaks, which happens in unmaintenanced properties, and water is the destroyer of buildings, right? I mean, and like there was like where the scale of water leaks we're talking about are literally like I mean, it's rivers. like the building was like rivers. It was like yeah. flooding, and like you know, these are like really like tall buildings, right? So they're like going down. Like they had to like get these like brooms like the community had to basically like step in for like what should have been like you know maintenance to come in and like maintain these things right and just kind of like try to do their best to sweep the water away but it just like kind of like just kept on coming in and you know it was so freaking cold that now like this water is starting to freeze inside of the building itself right creating basically mm -hmm. like this like cursed ice rink right the elevators weren't working they actually had to pull the rope of the elevator sometimes <laughs> to like and you know get the, the elevator climbing up, up and down the, <laughs> climbing like, elevator the elevator cables yeah. <laughs> yeah. like and like they, they even were so known for like putting this out like, being so good at doing the elevator thing but like you know uh older people would like you know kind of like ring their bell basically be like hey you know the teenagers like come and like take me to the seventh floor i need to get to the seventh floor and they'll like actually climb on the elevator and start pulling the <laughs> elevator up for them i mean like wow yeah it's it's crazy and i mean the water thing you get lots of footage you know water would run down the stairwells and in the winter, I mean, it looks like you're inside a cave, like these like stalag, you know, tights or mites, whichever one comes down, right? Um, yeah. Icicles, you know, hanging down. And the thing about the elevators in Prue Igo is they built they built them as skip elevators, meaning even though it was an 11 story building, the elevators only stop on four floors, right? So it stopped on, I think, one, four, eight and 11, right? And then and, you take the stairs for the rest, right? Yeah, you got to take the stairs for the rest, which might or might not just be full of ice, right? Yeah. Also, like when the elevator gets stuck between floors, it's not like one of those things like in a movie where you open the doors and there's like one floor, you know, on the bottom half of the elevator, one floor on the top half <laughs> of the elevator, and maybe you squeeze out. Like you might just be in the shaft. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. There's, like, <laughs> there's a good chance there's no door near you. Yeah. And yeah. These kids were like breaking people out of the elevator and stuff. Um, 
you know, and there was, you know, smaller issues that are, you know, serious quality of life issues. Uh, they, you know, instead of having, you know, adequate trash removal or whatever, they built furnaces in the basement uh, that you would just burn your trash in, right? Except Bro, for I the... felt sick to my stomach at this story. <laughs> yeah, and the furnaces were not big enough to handle the trash load of a building with so many people in it. And so the trash would just pile up outside the first. Then the furnaces would break and all the you know, then incinerators, I guess. The incinerators would break and all this kind of stuff and they would stop working, right? And trash would pile up. And so people frustrated with the situation, or maybe even the maintenance guys themselves would just light the trash on fire in the hallway, right? Uh, meaning that the smoke from the burning trash would then waft up the elevator shaft, right, you know, into the rest of the building. Oh, God. And so, you know, very quickly, the projects themselves were allowed to deteriorate, you know, uh, uh, you know, at a very quick pace. Now, you know, the reason for this is funding. Like, I mean... You know, they're going to come up with lots of racial explanations and cultural explanations in the city of St. Louis and nationally about what's happening at Pruitt Igo, but they literally just didn't fund it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and this is happening simultaneously with the city of St. Louis depopulating. And so the other part of Pruitt Igo and projects like it was well, we'll have this dense housing downtown, and part of the appeal will be that it's very close to all the jobs that the people who work in the projects could potentially get, uh, except for the fact that all the jobs then left. You know? Yeah, right. And it, they, it built, they built Pruitt Igro for a growing city, and the exact opposite in very dramatic fashion happened to the city at large. It was, yeah. you know, I mean, arguably even, like, you know, bigger than just, like, the the project itself like it was really a consequence of uh you know the depopulation of a city that was planned to grow yeah i mean between basically the time uh like the peak of st louis's population which is like 1945 uh up to today the population cut in half you know yeah. <laughs> which is for people in uh seattle or new york city uh, that, <laughs> that might seem like a crazy thing to imagine, but the city just essentially depopulated, which happened to a lot of cities in the Midwest. And now you have these people in the middle of it in this massively dense, you know, compound, essentially, <laughs> who are neglected. You know, I mean, there's, there's like no other way to say it, except for the fact that, you know, whereas you know funding for like maintenance was always elusive in the you know at prudico funding for the policing of social service recipients right that remained perfectly abundant <laughs> yeah right, right. Never that was always there that. yeah and you know federal local officials they saw it as their duty to patrol the morality of the residents of prudico yeah Throughout the 1950s and 1960s, women seeking social assistance from the government in the form of aid for families with dependent children or housing from the public housing agency were subject to rituals of personal humiliation in exchange. Recipients had to submit to routine home inspections and prying interviews of both them and their kids. Social workers could write them up for things like painting a wall or making a frivolous purchase. Residents of Pruitt Igo, for example, were not allowed to own a television. Write-ups could land a welfare recipient in court, with their aid ultimately being terminated. As one former resident described the perspective of social workers at the project, quote, 
we're giving you money. We want you to, <laughs> we're giving you money. We want to be able to control you. We're giving you money. So we have the right to make stipulations about how you use it and what you use it for. The inspections went much deeper than wall colors and televisions, however. The main focus of these inspections centered on the sex lives of single mothers. Recipients were asked prying questions such as, when did you last menstruate? Social workers looked for any sign of unauthorized men in the house, and children were grilled about their mother's sex life. In their book, Regulating the Poor, Francis Fox Pivot and Richard Cloward provided the following transcript of an interaction between a judge and a welfare investigator. How often were you refused admission to a recipient's home? Very, very seldom. Less than 1%. After identifying yourself and requesting permission to inspect the recipient's home, did you ever say that he or she had the right to refuse entry? Never. Why not? It was always my understanding that they had to open up their premises to inspection if they wanted welfare. What did you do then? My partner and I then went through the house as fast as possible. How long did that usually take? Five to seven minutes. Why did you hurry so? The object was to go as far as you could before the client objected. Usually we had split up. One of us would keep the client busy talking, and the other would move quickly through the rooms and closets. What if the client objected? Well, then we'd leave, but, you know, that's why we moved fast. Were there any other techniques you used? Yes, we sometimes split up before entering a house, one of us going to the front door and the other to the back. Why was that? If there was a man in the house, he'd leave by any means available. Windows, fire escape, or even out the back door. A later resident described the feeling in Pruitt-Igo, quote, In the project, it seemed strategically planned to create an environment that people felt isolated, that people felt restricted, that people felt inhuman. It was void of humanity. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, the underappreciated thing. You know, a lot of times when we talk about policing the poor and things like that, we, you know, we, we look at the very visible elements of that, which is, you know, co jackbooted cops fucking, you know, arresting poor people, right? But there's a whole, like, state apparatus invested in monitoring everything that poor people do, right? Uh, rooted in a very old idea in the United States of an undeserving poor, right? You know, because if capitalism is this godly anointed system, if you're losing at it, meaning you're living in poverty, that must be something wrong with you personally, right? Yeah. Something that has to be gotten out of. And in the Prudigo myth, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting is seeing the responses of the residents to this sort of treatment right i mean there's the woman who's talking about how her mom you know they told her mom she was not allowed to buy a television <laughs> yeah yeah that was incredible yeah. And, yeah and everybody in the complex was banned from purchasing televisions and then she's like and then just one day we got a letter saying well you can buy a television and you know it kind of flies by the thing but the arbitrariness of that kind of stuff, right, is an element of control in itself, right? Yep. 
it's everyday evidence that you are not in control of your own life. You know, you're not in control of what happens or anything like that. You're at the mercy of social workers who, again, I mean, just like we talked about above with appraisers and real estate and people work at the FHA, the social workers too, professional workers, they're just doing their job, right? They're going by their training. So they're working through the objective steps of improving these people's lives which uh, they're convinced it involves monitoring their purchases and making sure that no men got in. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that all of this really kind of showed like, this is just a 20 years really out of the Pruitt Igo from when it started to kind of where it, um, you know, ended up. And it it was just a complete level of disciplining, uh, you know, for people to say like, you know, you can't have like anything, you know, nice, mm-hmm. right? You can't even, you know, have control over your own life. And like to, as they said, you know, it, the reason why uh, it, people felt like restricted um, is one thing, but they were. Um, people felt inhuman. Well, they were dehumanized, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the reason why it was like devoid of humanity. And I think like when you have that environment, um, that's when you start to get the actual image of maybe what you'd have now of what like projects are. It's just what you probably see in like the wire, right? A re- like organized crime on the rise, uh, for instance, right? You know, like people like kind of forming maybe even like, you know, organized crime taking advantage of people who have really nowhere else to go. Um, it was a rough, rough area, uh, you know, after, you know, when conditions were deteriorating that like leads to the rise of of these things mm-hmm. right of these kind of like you know antisocial and social um you know ills like um like gangs and crimes and like all of this stuff it doesn't really come out of nowhere right and so like some of the tenants were talking about how like when you're walking down the street you can't show any weakness at all like when you're walking in the projects right like when you like when there's a you know shots being fired right like from guns uh, you don't flinch, right? You just gotta mm-hmm. just keep it moving and keep it pushing. Um, if you show, if you're a man and you show any emotion, like you're gonna be, you're just gonna be jumped, right? Like I mean, like that was like the environment that they are in. To grow up in that environment, um, you know, really like it shapes, you know, who you are. But it also uh, comes from a place of just complete neglect and control, right? Um, it leaves this like hole um, that is filled by all of those ills. Yeah, and I mean, you know, one of the most heartbreaking sort of personal accounts in the in the documentary is this guy who was a child in the Prudiga projects whose family moved in clearly when it was in its steep decline. And, you know, his memories are very different than those of the people who moved in when it first opened, right? Yeah. And, you know, he tells this sort of heartbreaking story about how you know, this this is filmed, I believe, in the mid aughts, right? And he talks about how, you know, he looks at children in Baghdad and he sympathizes with them because he knows what it's like to live with fear every day, right? Yeah. He's scared. And uh and that so he you know, his conclusion is that, you know, Prude Igo, I guess, taught me empathy, right? And I thought what was interesting about that example, you know, other than just being a very sad story, is that these are both conditions that I think in the popular press or whatever, or maybe the popular imagination, both of these we blame on the victim, right? You know, Mm -hmm. in Baghdad, things are the way they are because those people are like that, right? In the projects, you know, it is the way it is because those people are like that. But in both, it's so clearly the the product 
of an environment created by outside forces, right? You no. Know, like the situation in Baghdad in the mid aughts is bad because the United States is in year 15 of destroying the fucking country, right? Yeah. And the situation for him in Pruitt-Igo was so bad because he was essentially in year 15 of Detroit <laughs> and the state of Michigan and the federal government destroying this fucking project, you know? And people who feel like they're essentially imprisoned in this project where they're being constantly watched, constantly evaluated, you know, constantly criticized. They're in a place where all the jobs have left and, you know, the area around them is increasingly abandoned. Uh, you know, maintenance went out the window a long time ago. Everything's breaking down. And, you know, a situation like that happens and then people, yeah, act out in antisocial ways, I guess. But the responses go, oh, what's wrong with those people? Yeah. Oh, look at like, of course. And it, and it reinforces like narratives. And if you're like, you know, a white mm -hmm. person, like just like, you know, looking from the outside, it's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, these like subhuman people who I'm already, you know, racist towards and already, mm -hmm. you know, have a vested capital interest in having them, you know, be this like image in my mind is like, well, look at that. Right. Like, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> there you go. Right. And you know what? It's also a act of public housing because like when the government steps in things just go to shit which is another which is another myth that was like really mm -hmm. touted out during that time is like this is why you can't have the government do anything right because it's always yeah. is too expensive they always like, can't afford it and it'll always go to shit you need to leave it up to the market because government intervention is inherently unnatural and it all it, it leads to just destitution basically like that's what you kind of see in like Priodigo was used as like this like symbol of like yeah see this is what happens when you actually try to do like something good right or something like you know public housing that's not um you know controlled by uh the market right is like uh you know you'll get these large housing projects which like can't work it, it's kind of like it kind of rings in like the same way as like a lot of like anti-communist propaganda kind of rings on how yeah, like yeah. a country can be run too right um you know it was kind of used as that when in reality like you know who was who was doing the destroying right who was making it go into shit right it's certainly not the victims who are living there you know in mm -hmm. fact that they in the very later years it got so bad and this is when like you know truly like radical organizing can like rise is like you know when like just conditions get so um, just stoop so 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 low um, you know they eventually were like you can't take this anymore and started like organizing in the in the council and started like just doing a straight up rent strike saying like mm -hmm. you know what fuck it like we're not gonna pay rent anymore and they actually collectively like didn't pay rent and and they were insisting that you know the city cannot afford it right they couldn't do all of this right but you know they eventually got their demands met um, when, yeah, when yeah. they did a rent strike for so long. But that's when the con conditions got so so bad that they actually had to band together out of desperation, right? I mean, and they ended up doing it, but it was kind of it was too late at that point, right? Like yeah, they yeah. got their you know needs met, but the inevitable still happened. Um, and you know, it, yeah. It's, and and the de deterioration has a way of snowballing too, because as things get worse, everybody who can get out of it leaves, right? Yeah. And yeah. as elements of the project are abandoned and things like that, well, that just speeds up the deterioration of, you know, all of it. Right. Yeah. And they had like a vacancy rate of like 50 percent or something like that <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, by yeah. the end of it. Like they were expect and they, you know, depend on those rents. It's not like they're getting these houses for free. Right. Yeah. They pay rent and those rents are supposed to be like, you know, put into maintenance and stuff yeah, like that. Right? The maintenance of it. That's what pay the maintenance. So, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And it's, you know, and 
you know, your your point about, you know, how this rings with a lot of other social institutions and things like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think it shows the sort of antisocial nature of uh, capitalism and how it runs the state, right? When you get these projects, I mean, when Prude Iga was built, there was a general agreement about this was a good idea. Now, that agreement was based on a lot of bad things in America, like mm-hmm. segregated housing and things like that. But in the end, like, the project was nice. It could have been something, right? But it was hobbled from the beginning, right? They crippled it by, you know, tying its funding to rents of the poorest people in Detroit, right? They crippled it. it, It's St. Louis. Or St. Louis, sorry. By tying its money to rents, you know, for the poorest people in St. Louis, right? They, you know, they, they hobbled the project. And then as it, of course, immediately starts falling apart, they point to the fact that it's falling apart to cripple it further, right? And say, see, there's something inherently wrong with it. We got to pull even more money out of it, right? And they just keep doing that until it collapses. And then they point back at its collapse and say, oh, this is the proof of why we shouldn't have done it in the first place, right? And, you know, this is what they did with AFDC aid, you know, welfare, right? Although, you know, this, this is Clinton's plan with welfare. It's what they did to public housing in every city in the country, Right. And it's what they're doing to public education, too. Right. Is you cripple it through creating these massive managerial structures that suck up all the funding of, you know, the public school system. You fill it full of cops and turn the public school budget into part of the policing budget. Right. You know, you basically funnel all the money away from the school. And then when the school predictably falls apart physically, (laughs) as they do at many (laughs) older schools or falls apart as far as its educational mission or whatever, you then point at the school and say, see, that's proof of why you can't run a public school. Yeah, you know? government is incapable of running a school. Like, we need to only have private schools, right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. that. It, it's an effect. This is, like, a playbook of privatization. And, I, you yes. know, I hate to, you know, zoom zoom out but a playbook of privatization is the same is what imperialism is all about right um, you put sanctions on a country and then say hey look at the like how much these people are suffering how like how awful it is to live there how they can't even have food like this is why you can't have a system like this right and this is why we need to kind of like you know come in and have you know our own capital to like intervene right and you know mm-hmm. it's it's a vicious cycle and it's like well who was actually you know instilling this onto them right like mm-hmm. this is not just like happening just out of um just out of human nature you know like yeah. this is like coming from like you know so like severe um, you know, sanctions from the person who is doing the same hand wringing to say, hey, look at this. This is why you guys can't have this. This is why the system doesn't work. And this is why, you know, we need to have like this Western American capitalist style of doing things. I mean, like this is and that is a way to actually, you know, get open new markets for like, you know, uh, capital to come in and exploit, you know, resources that were, per, you know, previously um, either owned like by the public or exploited by their own. Um, you know, national sovereignty, right? Um, so yeah, I mean that that is how you essentially like uh, privatize formerly public goods mm-hmm. is to completely um, defund them, um, make them as like stringent and like awful uh, experience as possible to the point where they collapse, and then you can point to them and say, "Hey, you know, this is what happens." <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and you know, in foreign policy or whatever, I mean, this was the heart of, you know, neoliberal foreign policy starting in the 70s, right, which is 
you go to a country in the third world that's been pilfered by the West for 100, 200 years, whatever, and you say, well, this country is in desperate poverty, uh, not because it doesn't have all these resources. There's lots of resources. It's in desperate poverty because the people here don't know how to run it. Totally yeah. negating the exploitation of you know the previous century, the wars, the weapons dumped into a lot of these places and things like that, right? The debt this, that they have with the IMF, you yeah. know, like <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, the IMF, you know, whatever, World Bank, whatever, will come in and say, we'll give you guys loans to bail you out, but you've been so profligate, you've been so poor in your mismanagement, now you have to you know follow what what's called the Washington Consensus, right? You have to let us you know, write your, you know, laws, you know, governing the economy and labor rights and things like that, which, of course, would drive the countries further into fucking poverty, right? And in some of the most extreme cases where the U.S. had to make comments on it in places like Haiti and stuff, they would just point at it again and just say, I mean, just look, you know, this is how we run our country and we're doing great. And look at how it's happening over there. It's got to be the deficiency of the people. Yeah. You know? And in this essentially is what ends up happening. Uh, it becomes this this endless cycle, this endless race to the bottom. And this is what happens with public housing and with Prudigos. It's you know it became the poster child for the the perceived failures of public housing. Yeah. So ultimately, Prudigo would be demolished in 1972. Postmodern theorist Charles Jenks would memor would memorialize the project five years later. Quote, modern architecture died in St. Louis, Missouri on July 15th, 1972 at 3.32 p.m. or thereabouts when the infamous Pruitt-Igo scheme, or rather several of its slab blocks, were given the final coup de grace by dynamite. Previously, it had been vandalized, mutilated, and defaced by its black inhabitants. And although millions of dollars were pumped back Trying to keep it alive, it was finally put out of its misery. Boom, boom, boom. Jenks ultimately blamed the Enlightenment with its belief in rational design and its naivetes too great and awe-inspiring to warrant refutation. The real cause of Prudigo's demise was more likely to be found in the sphere of mainstream politics and newspaper columns where attacks on public housing took on the tone and language of the Cold War. As we discussed back in episode 17.5, love the numbering system. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> single family or single family suburban housing with its focus on property and individualism was very quickly coded in the public mind as American, read capitalist. While public housing projects with their visible government intervention, poor clientele, and collective orientation were regarded as socialistic, read black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As historian Robert O'Self put it, suburbanization was driven by two impulses. The first was the broad subsidizing of the American middle class by the federal government in the post-World War II decades. The second was the privatization of the public sphere in which suburban landscape architecture, detached single-family homes, and property-centered politics together accelerated the demise of public culture and a democratic commitment to communal responsibility. In short, the goals and values of public housing projects and suburbanization were in direct contradiction with one another, and one of the two was going to have to be strangled in its crib. With money, tax support, highway projects, and planning, the federal government chose the winner. 
So in the final analysis, Prudhigo did not become the victim of the evil forces of modernism, as the world's most boring architect suggested. <laughs> Nor was it the product of a culture of poverty, as the Ivy League's most racist professors would contend. Given the choice between the cash cow of suburbanization and the burden of public housing, community after community picked suburbanization. Those that might object had already been forgotten, abandoned in places like Pruidigo. In short, the projects were killed by capitalism. Yeah, and I think this is the main point. I mean, Jenks in his book, which I strongly recommend nobody read, <laughs> um, you know, he tries to lay out this argument that there's some sort of uh, spatial Lovecraftian magic that happens when you make uh, large, you know, dense, <laughs> you know, buildings <laughs> yeah. uh, that causes people to lose their minds. I think. Yeah, the can, vibes are off. <laughs> yeah, you can read it subtext and it causes black people to lose their minds, which I think yeah, would be his yeah, out yeah. of why this is not a problem in Europe, right? Uh, or Japan. But the reality, and, you know, in. Certainly by the time of Pru- I guess collapse, which we'll talk about next you know, time is uh, in episode 21, this culture of poverty idea coming out too, that there's just something inherent to the black family, to black people or whatever, that meant that this project would never work, right? These, these were sort of the popular answers that were given. But when you look at it, there's no reason why Pru- I guess shouldn't have worked. It was killed. No. Like, it didn't die. It was murdered. <laughs> And that's a difference, you know. Yeah. And part of that death was that by the time Pru Iga was being built, even home building in the suburbs had become a massive federal industry, right? Like it was a huge cash cow. Only the def- only defense spending was bigger on the American docket. There was so much money in these guaranteed loans, right? There was so much money and essentially the federal government indemnifying the bank against any potential losses and things like that. The weight was put so heavily on home building that there was no other choice for capital to make. You know, suburbanization had to be the answer, right? Given the, the ledger, Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And the thing that's interesting about that is that this is completely in opposition to, you know, basically urban development in any other country. Right. Which almost every other country on the planet, the way it develops is you have a densely populated urban core where essentially all the money, you know, I, I hesitate to say jobs, although that's part of it, but the money is actually gathered, right? You yeah. know, and sort of pooled up and everybody's huddled around it, including the wealthiest people in the society, right? So if you want to find the wealthiest people in Germany, they're to be found in Berlin, you know, yep. not in the countryside, right? Yeah. You know, pooled around this pile of money in the urban center, right? Because cap, you know, capitalism uses urban centers as nodes for money collection, right? But the outskirts are where the slums are, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I remember riding a train outside of Berlin and seeing the, you know, uh, housing, which I must say looked 
quite quaint and honestly very appealing, but <laughs> it was the housing for German seniors who, you know, maybe did not have so much money, right? Uh, small little houses, uh, you know, like one story, maybe like, you know, one bedroom houses, two bedroom houses uh, with these nice little tended gardens <laughs> in the yard and stuff, <laughs> you know, and but that was outside of the city, right? Where the property values are less, right? So this kind of public investment seems like it makes a good idea, right? You know, the favelas in Rio and Sao Paulo are going up the mountains outside of the city, right? If you go into Mexico City, the slums are outside of the city, right? You know, this is, you know, uh, Lagos, wherever, right? This is the natural sort of state of urban development. But in the United States, it didn't do that. And the reason like the reverse, (laughs) the reverse happened, right? It was the only place where the city died in the center and the outskirts absorbed all the money. (laughs) Yeah. And that is entirely because of federal intervention. Like, you know, that is entirely the federal government choosing how capital was going to develop this, this area. And it was initially made off of very like dumb for very dumb reasons of like, Let's just find a way to get construction workers working that involves a public-private partnership, right? Where we rely on the market, right? And the problem is, in doing that, the federal government absorbed all the prejudices and hatred and instincts of the market, right? (laughs) And just made it federal policy, (laughs) right? Right. Like, every awful idea that a rich person in america has ever had that will just be the, that's the just law. the policy now and in doing that essentially created the fucking suburbs a hive of disgusting ideas now the funny part or the crazy part is is we all mentally because culture hasn't caught up live in this world right where the suburbs are where the money is and the city is this dilapidated, you know, the donut theory, as they would call it in mm, urbanization, mm. right? You know, the dilapidated core and the ring <laughs> around it, right? The, the yeah. delicious sugary yeah. ring around it. <laughs> and the interesting thing is, as neoliberalism has taken hold, and, you know, a lot of that state intervention has kind of gone away, is we've actually seen a return to the natural city form under capitalism, which is the money is all now flowing with the people that have it back into the city. Right. Right. And the poor are now like a centrifuge being thrown out of it, you know, and certain cities more than others, New York city, very definitely, you know, Manhattan used to have slums on it. I mean, can you believe? I mean, no, (laughs) uh, that's kind of like, when i went yeah (laughs) so i had a friend that lived over by prospect park in brooklyn and when i first started visiting her in the mid aughts the neighborhood right there at uh lefferts yeah lefferts uh, garden yeah 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 that that basically that neighborhood previously had been a neighborhood of working class uh a working class jewish neighborhood of people who you know garment workers who had like done slightly better and could get out of the slums of manhattan right who had gotten these brownstones or whatever in that area uh had transformed into neighborhood at that point of caribbean immigrants right so yeah yeah, was an extremely black neighborhood right but of caribbean immigrants and 
even from that point of the mid aughts up until about the mid 2000 teens, completely transformed into uh, white people with expensive baby strollers. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it led to one of my favorite things ever, which is I saw a neighborhood watch sign in the elevator of my friend's apartment and I asked her about it. And she, I was like, I was like, damn, dude, gentrification. The white people are like putting their their stink on it in here. And she's like, oh no, that's like the the black people who live here who put that up because they're like all concerned that now that the white people are moving in, crimes come in. (laughs) 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 But, But you know, the forces of gentrification, right, have taken over these neighborhoods. And where do the people go? You know, I mean, that's always the Mm -hmm. question, right? And they just get pushed out you know and they have to go out to where it's cheaper and so they go out to the bronx right and they'll go out further from there you know in the future uh in seattle you know the movement has largely been to the south right moving to uh you know federal way right moving to places you know renton would be the closest edge you know yeah, I mean, and again, something that's, you know, part of the reason why it's hard for us to, or I think people have a hard time visualizing that this all happened very recently. Because again, when I moved to Seattle, I remember when the Central District was black. Yeah. <laughs> you know? like, it was like, it was a black stronghold. Yeah, I remember when you could get a Nation of Islam paper there at the corner of <laughs> yeah. uh, Jackson and, and 23rd. Uh, 23rd, right? You know, where now yeah. it's like <laughs> a fucking Starbucks and a giant condo where the Red Apple Huge, that yeah, massive ass. Yeah, I know exactly which one you're talking about. Yeah. You know, and I think in the housing debate, we sometimes get focused on the buildings when talking, even talking urbanists we get focused on the buildings hmm. and what they look like. And we forget about the people, right? Which is people used to fucking live there. And where are they now? Yeah. Nobody cares because these are not the desired consumer under capitalism. And so nobody cares. So where do they go? Who knows? Right. Right. They get spread out to the exurbs right? Some of them presumably will end up homeless, right? Wherever, right? You know, situation's gotten worse, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this in later episodes, but, you know, we're talking here about a very managed situation of intensifying housing segregation, intensifying poverty in urban cores that then is left to the market that now is intensifying housing segregation again, but switching it, (laughs) just just switching where it is, you know? Um, But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something to see. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt. (laughs) Good, good to be alive. (laughs) Yeah. Well, why don't we go ahead and close this out? So, in his essay, Less Than Plessy, which I strongly recommend everybody read and will be in the show notes, historian Arnold Hirsch used the Cold War policy of containment to explain the housing policy of the 1950s. The suburbs were not, in fact, entirely white. And the inner city, though increasingly identified as non-white, also held recent immigrants, the remnants of earlier waves of settlement, gentrifiers, and iconoclasts of all colors. But to the extent that the location revealed race, class, and status, however, the popular image of a white suburban noose looping around a black-occupied core conveyed the Eisenhower administration's answer to the nascent urban crisis. 
a full-fledged construction boom that fueled a staggering expansion of the national economy, a laundry list of ready-to-go projects that could be taken off the shelf to prime the Keynesian pump in the event of a downturn. The expectation of home ownership on a racially exclusive metropolitan periphery for whites and more new and better housing for African Americans constituted the foundation upon which the new accommodation stood. That the housing intended for blacks was largely segregated, concentrated, and an increasingly obsolescent central city, and provided little entree into the private mainstream market, was the price for being noticed at all. Containment seemed the operative principle, not simply as a Cold War foreign policy, but also in domestic racial affairs. Contain as many African Americans as possible in the central city, especially if they are poor, the reasoning appeared to go. And provide housing for the mushrooming black middle class on the outer banks of the core settlements, on the vacant urban fringe beyond that, and, only to the extent necessary, in new suburban developments beyond the municipal borders. If pushed to this final extreme, development would be undertaken on a segregated basis in isolated locations. Coincident economic and suburban booms sustained each other and proceeded without fear that values and futures would be jeopardized by an uncontrolled African-American settlement. The money's going to be on the cow's mouth to build his freedom and liberty and access to a land to get rid of this abusive uh, It's free real estate. Legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de la